Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and verses 21 through 22, found in the New Testament section of our Red Pew Bibles, beginning on page 56. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. To Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, amen. Luke 3, verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His renowning fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 21. And now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so my friends, I, I consider it an honor to stand before you this morning on a morning where we remember the Lord's baptism his baptism in water, and the words of John, that the one who is coming will baptize us in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And I'm grateful on a morning like this that I can also be standing before our fellow leaders who are here with us in person and those who joined us online, and you, the congregation. I'm really grateful to be here on a morning like this. So if you were here with us last Sunday, we were talking about this new series that we just started called Defining Values. 
And what I've been saying, and I want to say it again, we all have values. Whether we know them or not, we have them. And how do we know that we have them? Well, our values tend to rise. They tend to, they tend to, they tend to, to, to bud and be displayed in moments of pressure, in moments of crisis, when we are in a predicament, when there are moments of anxiety and crisis, we're forced to make a choice, and it is then it becomes clear who we really are and what we really stand for. Another way to say it is that values are our personal bottom line. It's like this line in the sand that we tend to draw on certain things, and they influence every aspect of our lives. They serve as guides to action, and they set the parameters for the hundreds of decisions that we make, whether consciously or subconsciously. You see, our values tell us when to say yes, and they tell us when to say no, and they help us explain the choices we make and why we make them. And so being clear, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm stressing this, being clear about our values will help us to navigate the difficult circumstances that we all face. I like to refer to my own values that I have received some of them as a boy, a child growing up as my GPS, my directional, my North Star. Certain things I just will never find myself doing because of who I believe God has made me to be. And so what I want you to know this morning that organizations can have values and our church has five values or guiding principles designed to inform how we should live. We want to live the way of Jesus. We don't just want to do it on a Sunday morning. We want to do it at home, especially at home. We want to do it in our neighborhood at work. We want to do it in the world. The challenge that I know I face, and I have a feeling you're not too far from the struggles I have, the challenge is always figuring out how to connect what we believe with how we live and how we behave. And so one of the huge mistakes we make about the way of Jesus, and if you look at that list, that is really describing the way of Jesus, Christ-like love, being spirit-filled, being rooted in Scripture, being compassionate, and being joyful. The challenge that we face is that we assume that because we believe a set of creedal statements, that that should do it. And I want you to know that it takes more than that. The right statements, the right creedal doctrines. I'm not decrying that. That is part of the process. But then a guy like Voltaire comes along and he warns that to know but not to do is not to know. Think about that. Think about all the things that you know. And Voltaire says, well, to know and not to do is not to know. So it, obviously, if we're going to be formed in Christ, it takes more than classes, right? Classes are important, but it takes more than that. And so I think what that statement is getting to is that there's a surface kind of knowing and then there's a deeper kind of knowing. Jesus, when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, Jesus is going to the deepest levels 
of our ability to know truth. It's walking in that truth, not just talking it. And so today, on a morning like this, I want us to know in a very deep and profound way this second value that our church is seeking to uphold, and that is that spirit-filled life. I want us to know that in a profound and in a very deep way, in a very experiential way. We want to be a spirit-filled church, filled with the overflowing life of God. My great longing for all of our leaders, for all of our brothers and sisters who call First Pres their spiritual home, my great longing for us is that we will walk in the Spirit, that we will follow His lead, that we will allow Him to exert His influence over us. I want it to be that deep in our hearts. And so in today's text, as you heard through the reading of the children's message and in the reading of the Scripture, we know that John the Baptist and Jesus are meeting again, possibly for the second time. We don't know. They're much older men now. Do you remember during our Advent readings when their mothers met? When Elizabeth and, and Mary got together, Elizabeth had John in her tummy and Mary had Jesus. And they met and they had a wonderful time and they sang songs and looked to the future with great anticipation because both of their sons had very, very remarkable births or, or, or conceptions. And then when you read the rest of Luke, Luke chapters 1 through 4, everywhere you look in those readings, you see this rich activity of the Holy Spirit. And you saw it in Mary in chapter 1, and you saw it in Zechariah as he stood in the temple, and in Elizabeth and in John, and in Jesus. And John, as we're reading in the text this morning, he's a forerunner. He goes before Christ. He prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. And John is doing his work in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I went back and I read Luke 1 and verse 15 where it says, even, even before his birth, the angel told Zechariah, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? And so the people then looking at John, looking at the, just the power and the extraordinary way in which he does his ministry, they started thinking in their heads, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the coming Messiah. And John, of course, immediately corrects them. And he says, look, there is one coming who is mightier than I. There is one coming who is superior in person and in ministry, and I am not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. When you think about that statement, I mean, that's one of the things disciples of the rabbi and the master would do. They would wash the feet. They would tie and untie the, the sandal of their master. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do the lowliest of the lowliest task. That's how great he is. And later, when all the people were baptized in the water and Jesus was also baptized, we read these words that the Holy Spirit, there's another baptism, right? The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in a visible, tangible, bodily form of a dove. And sometimes when we read these stories, we think, well, you know, those are just stories. They're just fables. Or other times we read these stories and we say, 
Well, clearly that's not about me. It's for those pastor types. It's for those mystics. It's for those people who walk and breathe a different air. Not for regular Evanstonians and Chicagoans like us. But then you pick up God's Word and you read through Genesis and you read all the way to Revelation and what you see is that the Spirit of God doesn't just handpick those special ones. The Spirit of God falls on all kinds of people. And one of the passages I often go back to affirm what I just said are the words of Joel. Joel, he said that the days are coming when I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And look at the categories and the types of people. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And those days have come, brothers and sisters. We're living in those days. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And it's poured out upon us. And what is normative? Here's what I want you to understand. What is normative is that whenever God calls people to serve, and since I have some of the leaders here, God has called you to serve. I want you to know that whenever God calls us to do something in his name, God equips us to do it. And God fills us with his spirit so that we can do his work. And at first, when I was preparing this message, I started all these citations, and then it was too overwhelming. Because as early as the book of Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, you see instances where the Holy Spirit being, was being poured out upon men and upon women. And I just gave up. I just want you to check it for yourself. So the question is, what does it mean then when, Jesus said, when John said that when Jesus comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? And the best way I can think about it is to be baptized in water, of course, is to be immersed in the water, to, to have the water pouring all over you. And I think there is something to be said in a similar way, that the Holy Spirit wants to be over us, wants to immerse us from head to toe. Here's the thing we've got to remember, though. All of us have what I call a center point. And for some of us, the center point is a career. For some of us, the center point is a relationship. It's entertainment. It's our sexuality. It's marriage. It's making money. It's sports. It's school. It's family. We all have a center point. And all the things that I just said just now, they're not bad things. But with these things as our center point, what happens to Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Well, they become peripheral. They become our hobby something we do when we have excess time. And of course, we enjoy the church. I mean, we love First Prayers. We love what God is doing and wants to do in First Prayers. We love the church stuff. But the reality is, for many of us, we are immersed and baptized into something else. And it's that thing that's at the center. Last month, in fact, it was December 29th of last year, I read an article in the New York Times where they were interviewing a fascinating woman by the name of Catherine Hayhoe. The article describes her as an evangelical Christian, a climate scientist, 
She's head of the Nature Conservancy, and she's a professor at Texas Tech University. And she said often when she goes out and gives these talks about the need for us to respond to the crisis that's going on in our environment, she gets all kinds of horrible reactions. And she referenced how one day she was speaking and a man stood up and shouted at her, I bet you are, you are, I bet you are a Republican. And she said, no, I'm a Canadian. And she, she talks about the inaction, the lack of concern for what's happening to this wonderful world in which we live, God's creation. And so the journalist asked her the question, does our current situation, this situation of inaction and passivity with the state of our environment, they, they, they asked her the question, does it ever make you doubt God? And she said this, and I want to read her response to you. She said, it does not make me doubt the existence or the goodness of God. Instead, it makes me doubt God's ability to act in people who call themselves his followers. And then she told this story, very sad story. She said, a few years ago, I had an interesting experience. I was visiting a university, as I often do, and during a luncheon event with a group of early career women, women one of the administrators at the university stuck their head in the room and said, the dean wants to talk to you, Catherine. And so Catherine walked out of the luncheon and sat down with the dean. And the dean looked at her and very soberly, almost very sadly said to her, you know, I used to be like you. What do you mean by that? I used to be an evangelical Christian. Now, when I use that phrase, evangelical, and she even, I, I finally got her book, and I started reading it. And, and so when people hear the word evangelical today, they think sort of a right-wing kind of political stance. And she's using the word evangelical in its historic sense, in its traditional, rich theological sense. To be evangelical is to hold certain cardinal truths about the nature of who Jesus Christ is and the gospel that he brings and how people are brought into a relationship with Christ. That name, of course, has been co-opted by the murkiness and the sort of the vileness of our political and our national discourse. And, and, and so when he says, I used to be an evangelical Christian, he's not referring to the politics of evangelicalism. He's talking about the whole credo. I used to be like that. And so she asked the obvious question, why are you no longer? And he said, it wasn't because I doubted the existence of God. It's because I couldn't see, this dean said, I couldn't see any evidence of God working in people. Instead, I saw person after person who claimed that they took the Bible seriously, that they were Christian, and all I saw in these people was the opposite of love. And when I read that, I paused, because that really, to me, is critical when we talk about having a center point. What the university dean is describing is what, for many of us, our lives look like in the church. We're baptized into other things. We're baptized into other agenda. We're baptized into politics, many of us, unfortunately. I have to say that. We're baptized into other things that suddenly become the, the, the sunum bonum of our lives, the center point of our lives. And physically, 
In all of our churches in Evanston and around this country, we physically still show up for the church stuff. But the energy and the power of God's life in the church then is missing. The result is, and this is my commentary, I'm going to go back to what Catherine said, the result is we don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and run the church anymore. And so God is, and our kids are, missing. The reason why I mention our kids is because so often what our kids are drawn to is what animates us. My kids are dyed-in-the-blue Duke basketball nuts. And I could show you a picture of when Jadine was a little baby, when all of our kids, you look in the crib and there's a little basketball, blue and white. So guess what? They, we, 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 we totally indoctrinated them that there's only one basketball team in the universe, and that is Duke basketball. Now, where did they get that from? And so we live life in the church as if God doesn't really matter. Then the dean said these words. It got to the point where I couldn't see any evidence of God working in people, and that's what I have struggled with, he said. Catherine responds, and she says, you know what breaks my heart? It's the attacks I get from people who identify as Christians. When someone on Twitter calls me, and I hate to say this word, but it's printed in the New York Times so you can read it, when somebody calls me a whore, she says, I go to their profile, and it says something about loving others and some Christianese about being so blessed to be a blessing. And she said, it makes me also feel discouraged. And she says, so it's not the stuff, the inaction in the care for the environment that makes me want to doubt God. She said, I get discouraged and I keep thinking, God, what are you doing? Where are you in the lives of these people who talk the walk? I don't want that for me. I don't want that for us. I want when our kids look at our church and they look at what we're doing, when they see us make decisions, when they see us navigating life in this world, they will see the imprint of God's Spirit upon our lives. So what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? Take a look at this, this slide. It means then to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and open to the Spirit's direction. It means seeking to hear. And last week I spoke about hearing waiting and seeking to hear and then be obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It means awareness. It's an awareness that God, listen friends, it's an awareness that God communicates with us through the Holy Spirit. Think about that. To be filled with the Spirit then is to be empowered, to be controlled, to be led, to be comforted, to be strengthened, to know that we are children of God, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So why live a spirit-filled life? And let me, let me sort of bring this to a close here. Why live a spirit-filled life? And I think it's because we live in what I call contested spaces. In the, in the epistle of John, 1 John, in chapter 2, John talks about the struggle that we have with the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
And what, what we understand then is that we're living in a battle. We're living in a, in, a, in a state of conflict. And some of those forces are external. Some of those forces are internal. And some of those forces are demonic spirits that challenge us every day, that try to tempt us and lure us aside. And if you read Luke chapter 4, right after Jesus hears these wonderful words, you are my beloved son, I am pleased with you. We read in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted. Jesus went into contested space and he was tempted by the devil. And we are living in contested spaces. And so we need something more than ourselves. And God fills us with the Holy Spirit, with the very life of God, so that we can stand, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, in those contested spaces. How do we do that, though? How do I experience? And I know that's the question I've always wondered. I can tell you with sadness this morning that my mother, for years and years in her life, felt that the Holy Spirit wasn't in her life. The reason why she said that, it was because she grew up in a church that taught that the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues, and she didn't speak in tongues. And so she said, I don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not at work in my life. And I've ne never met a more spiritual woman than my mother. And I, years and years, and here I am as your young son, in my teens, reading the Bible, and I kept reminding her, reminding her that, Mama, no, that's not the sign of the Holy Spirit. How do I know? How do I experience the Spirit-filled life? Well, I can give you a wonderful parallel from Scripture where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's a wonderful analogy to help us think through. I have never, and I, listen, I'm not a saint. There's just something in things in my life I've never experienced, and I don't want to experience it. I've never been drunk before. But I know in order to get drunk, you've got to drink. And in those days, the wine that they would have had in those days it was cheap wine. It was watered-down wine. So to get drunk in Jesus' day, you had to gurgle and goggle and, and, and drink a lot of wine over and over and over. It take you quite a while. And then eventually, if you keep drinking, you are going to get drunk. And Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So how do you get drunk with the Spirit? How do you get filled with the Spirit? Well, you've got to drink in a lot of the Spirit. Lots of it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, here's another verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all made to drink, there's that word, of one spirit. And Jesus said these words that if anyone thirsts, I love the words of Jesus when he says this, my brothers and sisters, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart, out of his being, will flow rivers of living water. And then John writes, Jesus was talking about the Spirit. So how do you drink the Spirit? So Paul says that those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So we drink the Holy Spirit, guys, if I can use that analogy, by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And what do you mean to set your mind on something? It just means to focus on something. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. Seek the things, seek the things that are above. 
Set your minds on the things that are above. And so the setting of the mind means to seek. It's directing your energy, directing your attention, making the fullness and the filling of the Spirit the center point of your life. That when you wake up in the morning, you go to bed at night, you're going through the day, that is the center. That's what you're concerned about. That's what you're focused on. And so I believe that seeking the Spirit means seeking the things of God, the things of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul wrote that the natural person, the person outside of Christ, doesn't accept this. They don't accept the things of the Spirit. But we who are in Christ, we then can own these things of the Spirit, which really is what? Jesus' words, the words of the apostles, that when we take in those words, when we focus on them, they transform us and we experience that fullness of the Holy Spirit. And listen, if you do this long enough, if you keep focused on it long enough, you will get drunk. Not with wine, but you'll get drunk with the Holy Spirit. In fact, you will get addicted. And instead of a chemical dependency, and I saw that in my parents' My father's life for so many years because he kept, he kept drinking. That was the center point of his life. He got drunk. He got dependent on those chemicals. But God wants us to develop a wonderful spirit dependency that the more you drink of God's word, the more you look to God, the more you depend upon him, you will become a spirit-dependent brother and sister in Christ. Jesus said these words, and I want to close with these words. Jesus said these words. If you then, who are evil, and he's talking about fathers and mothers, you know how to give good gifts to your children. And we just came through Christmas. Every year my kids get older, we don't spend as much on Christmas gifts as we used to because well, what can you give to kids who are adults now? But man, when they were young, we wanted to give them the world. If we parents who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And that's it. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, we must pray, pray, and say, fill my cup, Lord. Just like we sang earlier, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of God, fall afresh on me. And that is what Paul does. That is what Paul said. We should pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. And would you do that this year? Would you? Would you? Would you just drink and pray? Drink and pray. Let that be the center point. Let that be what animates your life every day. Lord, I can't live a day without you. I can't breathe without you. And so your day morning, during the day, evening, it is just suffuse with this desire to drink and pray. We have a prayer meeting coming up this Wednesday. You heard it announced. And I want to invite you to come and join us to do just that. Now, whenever I talk about prayer meetings, I always have to say, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. And if you don't come, it doesn't mean you don't care about the Holy Spirit and you don't care about God. So let me just let you off the hook. I want you to come and join us because you feel hungry, you're thirsty, you're weak. You want Jesus, you want the Spirit of God to be the center point of your life in 2022. And so if you're av available at 7 o'clock online, 
I encourage you to come join us. And let us pray for these brothers and sisters who just stepped into God's, God's this, this plan that God has for them as leaders of our church. I want you to join me as we pray for our church and our community because the issues of the day are so big and we can't manage them anymore in our strength. We need power from on high to do it. And that's what happened in the book of Acts and that's what needs to happen today. So God bless you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people say, Amen. Amen.